Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. In the wake of the 2007 financial crisis, Congress passed the most important bank regulation since the Great Depression. Known as the Dodd-Frank Act, the law was an attempt to stabilize the U.S. economy. But what exactly does Dodd-Frank do? Hello and welcome to Talks on Law at the Cutting Edge of Law. I'm your host, Joel Cohen. Our guest today is one of the few people in the world who actually know what Dodd-Frank does, Annette Nazareth, a partner at Davis Polk and an expert on bank regulation. Welcome to Talks on Law. Thank you, Joel. When we're talking about Dodd-Frank, it's a lot more than just one little law. We're talking about, first of all, one of the most important laws in the last decades, but it's a huge amount of legislation. It is a vast piece of legislation. Obviously, 898 pages of legislation is quite significant. 898. The, the previous act that came after the Great Depression was... 60 pages or 30 something pages. like that, or in that zone, certainly. Um, and so it's quite significant. And it's also significant when you think about the fact that it did not have widespread support. It was widely supported by the Democrats, but not by the Republicans. Very few uh, Republicans supported Dodd Frank. So when you think about a significant piece of legislation like this, that was also pretty divisive. It has been compared with the health care. Uh, bill the, that's known as Obamacare as being just that level of controversial. Yes, and so what, what you saw was, for instance, um, 800,000 comment letters on the rulemakings that were proposed. You know, as I said earlier, there were, you know, 398 rulemakings that were required. The rulemakings themselves, uh, you know, are, you know, 22,000 pages of Rulemakings. I mean, you could fill 34 Moby Dicks with the amount of, of pages in those rulemakings. It's just huge amounts of um, pages and to, to digest. And it, it again, is a, a very problematic when you don't have total consensus on, on what was done. And so you've had a lot of uh, hearings in Congress as well. And it was controversial when it passed, yes. but it's remained controversial. There's even There's been numerous attempts to repeal or change the law? Yeah, so there have been um, almost 140 attempts to repeal uh, uh, or amend Dodd-Frank. And um, so, you know, it, it's something that uh, has also caused some division within some of the agencies that were charged with the rulemakings. Um, so it continues to be sort of a challenge within, uh, you know, within the administration. Are banks safer today? Well, I think they are. Banks today have much higher capital than they did, certainly, uh, before the financial crisis. They're much more liquid. Um, I think they have done, um, you know, much more planning around the living will process. They have simplified their, uh, their structures. I think they are in much better shape than they were before. Um, I know there continue to be concerns about uh, too big to fail, and there is, you know, some concern, some lingering concern that the, the mere fact that some of these institutions are designated as systemically important uh, essentially means that they are targeted as too big to fail. But the fact of the matter is I think that um, they are substantially stronger than they were in the past. I think I mentioned in the introduction the 2007 crisis was a 
was a significant financial shock. Oh, it was very significant. I mean, it was the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. Uh, significant unemployment, um, you know, huge numbers of uh, uh, defaults on mortgages, uh, you know, significant uh, numbers of people who were potentially put out of their homes. I mean, it was very, uh, very bad. A number of the banks uh, uh, were, you know, at risk of failing. There was a, you know, as you know, a, a bailout of a number of the uh, financial institutions and uh, you know to this day I think there are a lot of uh, members of the general public who still feel the effects they lost a lot of money in their retirement accounts you know this is something that uh, people have not forgotten so the crisis itself as you mentioned led to a lot of people losing their homes a great amount of wealth being lost the government decided to step in uh, the government extended a huge amount of uh, credit to the banks uh, which, as we know, in retrospect, the banks have you know, survived, uh, which was a very good thing. But there's still a lot of debate over whether that's something that we ever want to do again. And there's a, you know, a concern about too big to fail. And so we now, uh, through the Dodd-Frank Act, have come up with a number of means to address um, what were failures in the financial system to avoid those kinds of situations from occurring. The devastation from the crisis right. itself was redressed or addressed by the bailout, Dodd-Frank is an attempt to avoid a future recession That's or a future correct. crisis. That's correct. So uh, among other things, um, the, we see now the um, requirements on the banks are, are greatly enhanced. We have uh, banks that have 50 billion or more in assets are now designated as CIFIs, which are systemically important financial institutions. These are the two big to fail institutions. Right, and they have um, enhanced capital requirements. They have um, higher liquidity requirements. They have leverage limits. Uh, they have to do um, living wills, uh, where they have to uh, plan for their uh, potential demise, and they have to um, think about how they would uh, and, and plan to uh, simplify their structures in order to um, ensure that if they run into problems that they don't have a contagion effect on other institutions. And so uh, in many ways, I think uh, substantial progress has been made in addressing a lot of these issues. Well, you mentioned a lot of the different components of Dodd-Frank, and maybe this is a good time for us to turn to the mechanics. Here, it's kind of a balancing act because we want banks to be reinvesting their assets. But we also want them to be safe. How did the Dodd-Frank treat that? One of the open questions is whether or not um, Dodd-Frank sort of got calibrated the requirements correctly. In other words, um, we certainly want to have stronger financial institutions. We certainly want them to be held to higher standards. The question is, going forward, and it's going to sort of take time to fully assess this, is whether the costs and burdens of the initial uh, of these additional requirements have reaped the, the benefits that we expect, and are we seeing some constriction, for instance, in the provision of credit in the economy? Because we certainly want to have banks that are going to lend. We need to have an economy where banks are lending in, into our capital markets, right? So. We don't know yet fully whether that's happening. And that raises an important question. You know, the law was passed in 2010, but that didn't mean that the entirety of the law took effect. Well, that's right. In fact, uh, I think that 
isn't really fully understood by a lot of people. You know, the law was passed, as you said, in 2010. It was almost 900 pages of law, huge amount of uh, very long piece of legislation, almost unprecedented. That said, have it, you read it? Uh, I did read it. I read <laughs> it. I'm sure a lot of people read it, but um, it called for uh, almost 400 rulemakings. I think it was about 398 rulemakings, um, and most of them were um, technically uh, called for to be. Um, finalized within a year, which obviously was not realistic. I think it was more of a technical uh, thing than, than reality. More technical as in, let's put extra pressure on I, I think so, let's put extra pressure. But I don't think anyone realistically thought that uh, 398 rulemakings would be done in that amount of time. So that said, uh, we've just realized, you know, the, uh, or just experienced the fifth anniversary of Dodd-Frank. And uh, at that point, we had... Uh, seen about 75% of the rules were finalized. Um, but again, massive amounts of rules. One of the things that the law did was increase the power and the oversight of regulators. Well, Dodd-Frank did address uh, regulation in a number of ways. Um, it created a committee called the Financial Stability Oversight Council, the FSOC. Uh, which is um, a group that is comprised of the chairman of each of the major uh, financial regulators and the chair of the FSOC is the Secretary of the Treasury. They discuss issues of importance that address issues of financial stability across the, the system. So and these are the uh, financial regulating dons or kingpins getting together to discuss you know, what's, what's wrong or right about the U.S. Exactly. financial system? Exactly. Well, it would be, for instance, the chairman of the Fed, um, the chair of the CFTC, the SEC, the FDIC, those types of um, financial uh, regulators, and they can talk about particular financial institutions that they regulate, They can, who are, you know, systemically important institutions. They can also discuss particular activities that are going on in the, in the markets that are of systemic importance. Is the purpose to harmonize their policies, or are they also, is this committee empowered to make any real changes? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, they, the committee itself does not make rules, but they do try to influence how some of the members do their own rulemaking. The idea behind this is to create what, a single regulator? Well, no. In fact, it, it's quite the opposite. You know, one of the somewhat disappointments of, of the Dodd-Frank Act was that we did not have regulatory consolidation. The FSOC was really a compromise. The FSOC is a giant committee. Uh, what we didn't end up with after Dodd-Frank was, as I said, consolidation of um, regulators, which had occurred in many other jurisdictions. We have notably probably- Notably in the UK. Notably in the UK. We have probably the most complex financial regulatory structure in the world. Which is good for who? Lawyers only? It's certainly not good for the regulated entities because it leads to a lot of duplication. And there was a concern after the financial crisis that what we had was um, a system where we had a lot of regulators, each of whom saw their particular area, but that there were cracks, there were areas that uh, no one saw, and that there was no, no one looking across the board at uh, the systemic risk, that each, each regulator was looking at the particular institutions and for the activities that they were charged with uh, reviewing. Um, so the FSOC is intended to sort of 
bring the review holistically together uh, and also to look across uh, the board at activities, but it, um, it certainly doesn't have the efficiencies that might have been realized if there were more regulatory consolidation. Back to the banks. You mentioned earlier something that came out of Dodd-Frank, which is this concept of a living will. For most of us, that's, that's a decision that you make when you're getting old in age. How does it apply to banks? Well, it's an interesting concept. Um, a living will is, uh, you know, for a bank is really sort of planning for your uh, potential demise. I think what happened uh, and the reason it came about was that uh, during the financial crisis, the, the sense was that um, the uh, liquidation of a firm like Lehman Brothers was, you know, far too painful and far too uh, messy and that um, not enough was sort of understood by the regulators about where uh, everything was and how what the structure of the organization was and all the, the various um, uh, subsidiaries and uh, uh, affiliates were. And uh, the, the thought is that if the banks can, ahead of time, uh, rationalize their structures, limit the, the number of um, uh, entities that they have, and um, plan for what would happen if they ran into a financial crisis and how could they minimize the impact of a failure by that institution on others and and uh, how could they minimize the impact of their demise that would be sort of ideal so that's that's what the living wills are and they've gone through a few rotations now of uh, uh, you know showing them to the to the bank regulators and they've made a lot of progress I think so this is already in place banks uh, yes. have begun creating these that's right and is the you mentioned the concept is partly in the case of a crisis or in the case of a failure, how does the regulator take over efficiently or how do they find the assets that they may need to sell off quickly? Right. It, the living will process is designed to minimize the losses to creditors, to shareholders, to minimize the losses to the financial system uh, and, to, and so that the regulators have a much better sense of where, um, you know, where the activities are so that to the extent possible, uh, important functions uh, can continue to operate. Another aspect of the pre-financial crisis uh, financial system was the proliferation, unregulated mostly or entirely, of derivatives or swaps. How has that changed? A derivative or a swap, um, some people describe in the most basic terms as a thing that's based on another thing. So for instance, if you had an interest rate swap is the most common swap. So if you had a loan that uh, where you had to pay interest at a fixed rate, and I had a loan where I had to pay interest at a floating rate, and we wanted to swap the fixed for floating rates, I preferred to pay fixed and you preferred to pay floating. We could do. We could swap those rates. But the underlying obligation. The underlying obligation wouldn't change, but the fixed for floating could change. So that that's that's what a swap is. So one of the uh, major pieces of the legislation was um, Title VII of Dodd Frank, which is uh, the derivatives bill. And under Dodd Frank, the uh, swaps market is now pervasively regulated. Um, Dodd-Frank has the swaps market now regulated both by the CFTC and the SEC. 
It's not the most efficient uh, way that they could have done it, but they divided the market between swaps and security-based swaps with the CFTC um, responsible for regulating the swaps market and the SEC responsible for regulating the security-based swaps market. It's really a major piece of legislation because we've gone from a multi-trillion dollar market that was not regulated at all, essentially. It was, in fact, it prohibited was, It was from prohibited regulation. from regulation under Graham Leach-Bliley to now being pervasively regulated. And, and by that, I mean that all aspects of that market are regulated. And if you stop and think about sort of probably what you understand about a regulated market, which is the equity market, right? You think about when you buy a stock, there are market data, there are prices that you see. There's a market that the um, security trades on. You go to a broker. There are disclosure requirements. Your trade clears on a, in a clearinghouse. All of those things that you sort of take for granted in the equities market did not exist in the swaps market. And that entire infrastructure... Um, is being built, um, and a huge progress has been made now in the swaps market. And all of the rules that relate to that, whether it was the regulation of the intermediaries, which are now swap dealers and security-based swap dealers, or the swap data repositories, which are the places where the trade reporting goes, or the SEFs, which are security, the swap execution facilities, which are where they trade, or the derivative clearing organizations where they clear. All of those uh, uh, different uh, parts of the system didn't, had, exist. didn't exist. And um, and again, when you think about the timing, of course, the Dodd-Frank Act said that was going to be done in a year. So the fact that, <laughs> um, that all of that has, uh, so much of it has been done uh, in five years is really quite extraordinary. So which of the two regulators is doing a better job? Uh, well... Uh, to be uh, to be honest, uh, the CFTC is way ahead of the SEC in this regard. Um, uh, the SEC has been a little bit slower in uh, rolling out its rules, um, but a lot of progress has been made. One of the more famous aspects of Dodd-Frank is the Volcker Rule. This is an area that you have particular expertise on. What is the Volcker Rule itself? And maybe we'll discuss a little bit its effectiveness. Sure. Well, the Volcker Rule, as you know, uh, prohibits proprietary trading by the bank. And proprietary uh, trading is when the right. bank is kind of trading on its own account. To correct. And it, it uh, prohibits it not only for the bank, but for all of its affiliates and its holding company. And it also says that the bank cannot uh, uh, invest in or sponsor a hedge fund or private equity funds. The concept behind this rule is that when banks are investing or using their money to make risky investments, and that's putting the entire bank, the bank assets at risk. That's right. I, I think uh, Paul Volcker's uh, notion really came from you know, his experience having been a, a banker throughout his career, um, and certainly sort of before the uh, changes to Glass-Steagall uh, that came about in the late 90s. You know, there was a clear separation of investment banking from banking. And um, I think that uh, he and, and there were uh, others who felt that um, this mix of uh, investment banking and proprietary trading uh, in uh, banking entities was something that they did not favor. Particularly, their notion was that um, that type of activity uh, you know, the bank uh, 
basically investing on its own behalf should not be going on in an insured depository institution. Uh, what ended up in Dodd-Frank obviously goes much further than that. It prohibits trading uh, by not just trading not only in the bank, but in all of the affiliates as well. So it's broader. It's, it's being it's applied broader. to institutions both here in the U.S. and their affiliates around the world. That's right, which I think um, came as a bit of a surprise to some of the foreign banks. Um, they do have some opportunity to, um, to carve their way out of it through some um, provisions relating to transactions that occur outside the U.S., but uh, there's still a lot of compliance um, burdens around ensuring that they satisfy those provisions. So now foreign banks may be looking at this in particular because now they have to pay a lot of attention to what's going on with Dodd-Frank. They absolutely do. I think that certainly one of the hallmarks of Dodd-Frank is that it's touched everyone. It has, it had a, sort of a jurisdictional impact that went far beyond the U.S. and I think that was um, something that I don't think was fully appreciated at the time that it was put into effect. If we had to think of a, a poster child for a bad implication of proprietary training, would this be the London Whale or there, there was a Credit Suisse employee, I think, where in, individuals able to risk or lose large amounts of bank assets? The London Whale situation um, occurred uh, just before some of the regulations came out around the Volcker Rule, and uh, that was at a time when the bank regulators were considering what type of activity might, might be permissible uh, by the bank treasury departments, um, and it certainly had some impact on their views on um, asset liability management and things of that nature, because I think there was some concern, obviously, there that uh, that some of the activity had gone beyond what they were comfortable with. In that particular instance, a trader managed to lose a number of billions of dollars of yeah. firm assets? Yeah, it was a big loss. The proprietary trading risk wasn't in and of itself one of the major causes of the 2007 crisis. That's right. And, and certainly uh, critics of the Volcker Rule say that, um, you know, the, the Volcker Rule really is not in direct response to what the causes of the financial crisis were. Um, but that said, it is a very big piece of the Dodd-Frank legislation. You mentioned one of the other aspects of the Volcker Rule is the prohibition or limitations from banks to invest in hedge funds or private equity funds. What's the justification for that? I think the limitation on investing in hedge funds and private equity funds was to get at not being able to do indirectly uh, what was prohibited directly. So if you can't uh, engage in prop trading, you don't want the banks to be able to basically do those types of investments through other vehicles, such as um, doing it through vehicles such as hedge funds and private equity funds. So if they're not allowed to do proprietary trading, right. they shouldn't be allowed to create a hedge fund or invest in a hedge that's fund correct. that's going to do the same type exactly. of stuff. We talked about hedge funds. Hedge funds were not being regulated before Dodd-Frank. What has changed there? Well, uh, Dodd-Frank did increase the regulation uh, of hedge funds. Uh, hedge funds now are subject to, um, well, advisors to hedge funds are subject to uh, registration requirements. Um, there's greater transparency of hedge fund activity, and the SEC does more uh, review of hedge fund activity than uh, certainly than was done before. One of the things that Dodd-Frank attempted to do was to create 
an organization that would advocate or look to the rights of consumers in the financial industry. What is that and how has that come into effect? Well, that's a good question. You know, the one of the hallmarks of Dodd-Frank uh, was the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And I don't know if you remember this, but that was actually the brainchild of Elizabeth Warren, Senator Warren. And she had been a big advocate of having um, a federal agency like that. And she had uh, spent a lot of time with uh, President Obama advocating for, you know, that type of an organization. And uh, her view, I think, was that you needed one agency to bring together all of the advocacy and the um, work that would go around um, ensuring that consumers, when it came to financial literacy and financial protection, that you had one agency that was really focused on those issues because a lot of the banking agencies had that as part of their mandate, but it wasn't their primary mandate. And so if you look even today on their website, you'll see that there's a lot of work that's going into you know, plain English disclosures, uh, having you know, consumers understand what the risks are of um, you know, certain lending practices and things of that nature. And um, uh, I think they've been you know, quite outspoken advocates for consumers. They've been outspoken, but do they have, does the organization itself have teeth, or is it merely to coordinate and uh, raise issues to the other agencies? No, I think that it, ha it does have teeth. It has, um, it has enforcement authority and, and uh, examination authority, and I think it's, um, it's a fully functioning federal agency. Dodd-Frank was the response to the crisis in the United States, but the financial system is an international one. How does Dodd-Frank and the re regulatory uh, structure there fit with the international structure or the way that we're working with other countries? Well, that's a really good question. You know, we certainly weren't the only country to have issues uh, around the financial crisis. And as a result of what happened in 2008, um, you know, the G20 got together and, and uh, had a number of agreements on how to uh, interact going forward. And uh, one of the agreements was that um, there would be a financial stability board uh, on which um, uh, all of the, the major countries would have uh, participants. So it's sort of an, an FSOC, but for the most important economies of the world. Correct. And um, for each of those important economies, you have representatives of the Treasury, the Central Bank, and essentially the um, securities regulators. So in our case, we have the Fed, the Treasury, and the SEC. And there are other um, uh, representatives on that FSB, Financial Stability Board, as well. And so they've sort of, again, taken these issues internationally and are looking for greater coordination internationally on a number of these issues of systemic importance. So, so for example, the swaps regulation you were talking about here, has that played out that other countries are following suit? Well, there are a lot of um, agreements on the contours of uh, what swaps regulation will look like internationally. So. Obviously, we, you know, we don't have agreement on all of the uh, particulars, but the fact that there would be you know, clearing houses and uh, encouragement for you know, execution on, on exchanges, things of that nature, uh, the fact that there would be transparency of prices, all of those things have been agreed upon, and the rules are likewise being uh, drafted and passed in these other jurisdictions. And what uh, 
now we have the challenges with is, well, what does it mean in a global world with all of these transactions that cross borders? Well, what rules will apply? What laws apply? And that's been the big challenge for our globally, you know, international players in the U.S., because obviously we have most of the major uh, financial institutions. They need to know what rules are going to apply. What are the rules of the road? And sometimes the rules may be conflicting, exactly. but both applicable. Exactly. We're in a bit of a bind now because it's a little hard to know until the rules have been passed in the other jurisdictions as well to know exactly what the cross-border uh, protocols will be. But um, ultimately what we need is a, a set of rules that will say, um, you know, do we get what they call mutual recognition or substitute a compliance? You know, when will we be able to recognize the rules of another jurisdiction because they're substantially similar so that uh, you know, parties can comply with their domestic rules by satisfying the rules of another jurisdiction. This is becoming more and more important in a global economy. And hopefully with additional countries following suit, that doesn't necessarily mean duplicated uh, efforts in, uh, in filing requirements. That's exactly right. All right, let's take a quick break for those who are listening for MCLE Credit in California. The code for this interview is 110615. That's 110615. And now back to the interview. Maybe we can take a look back at what Dodd-Frank has done well and perhaps you know, some of the areas where regulation may be continuing to catch up. Why don't we start with what do you think have been the most important successes of Dodd-Frank? Well, I certainly think uh, Dodd-Frank has uh, strengthened the financial system in many ways. I do think the banks are stronger. I think they're better capitalized. I think that um, the living will process has generally been a, you know, a successful one. I think that the banks are uh, less leveraged. I think they're more highly liquid. Um, I do think that the um, regulation of the swaps market has uh, been largely a success. I think on the, you know, sort of still to come uh, and uh, uh, still not quite sure yet, uh, we need to see uh, with the VOCA rule just how it, how it is fully implemented. Uh, there's been some concern expressed, although I think the jury's still out, as to whether or not um, some of the prohibitions on prop trading will have some uh, negative impact on liquidity. That, that has been expressed as a concern. I don't think um, we know fully yet whether that uh, is, is in fact the case, but that's certainly something that will be studied. There are um, uh, also concerns about just the, the, the breadth of the impact of the uh, rules overall and the fact that obviously it is costly. We have probably the most highly regulated uh, system now in the world, and um, it is costly. Obviously, it is uh, somewhat burdensome on the financial institutions, and we have to be conscious of the fact that it could have some impact on the extension of credit by the banks, and, you know, does that have some impact on the economy? But, um, again, we need to keep an eye on that and, and uh, see How if that's the, the case. How about the efficiency of the regulators working together? Well, that is my biggest uh, um, issue, but th that's always been my uh, 
just something that I care a lot about. I, I personally think that um, we missed a big opportunity. Um, I think Rahm Emanuel said, and I'm, he didn't say it in exactly these words, but he said something to the effect of a financial crisis is a terrible thing to waste. <laughs> and um, I think that it was unfortunate that um, out of the financial crisis did not come substantial restructuring of our financial regulatory system. We ended up with very much what we had before, this very uh, cumbersome hodgepodge of financial regulators that was just a, a result of a historical precedent. We have uh, a more complex financial regulatory structure than any other jurisdiction in the world. And what we came out with was virtually the same number of regulators as we had before. I think we put the OTS, the Office of Thrift Supervision, out of existence, but we formed the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, so we're pretty much the same, same number. number. Um, and we just overlaid on top of it, as you and I discussed, the uh, FSOC to try to bring it all together with a committee. Um, but um, we certainly didn't make it any, any easier. So uh, the question is, uh, I don't know, I, I, I don't wish another crisis upon, upon us to uh, to have an opportunity to rethink it, but it would be nice if someday we had a chance to uh, to reduce the number of regulators and make uh, make the system a little simpler in that regard. Let's talk about the legacy of Dodd Frank. Right. Is this law, this controversial law, does it have staying power, or is this something that the next administration could simply change? I don't think it would be that easy to change. I actually do think it is going to have staying power. Um, I think unless both houses of Congress were Republican and you had a Republican um, in the White House, I think Dodd-Frank will be here to stay. Remains to be seen what will happen. It was wonderful having you here, and we may, uh, we may need to have you back to talk a little bit more about some of these details. Thank you. I'd be delighted. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.